Hey friends, just so you know, we enjoy the swear word and we rely on good old fashioned humor to get through some seriously dark subject matter. At no time do we intend any disrespect toward the victims or families of the victims in the cases we cover. Also, be sure to listen to the end for a few palate cleansing bloopers to reset your mindset. And with that, we thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crime Motel. I'm Carrie. And I'm Jamie. Our case today takes us to my birthplace, Jamie. (gasps) Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Well, I am also an Iowa gal. Yes, you are. Not Cedar Rapids, but... Right smack in the Midwest of the United States. Yep. Just a couple of corn-fed gals. I was just going to say where corn and wheat fields are aplenty. Mm-hmm. I was curious what Iowa's like top agricultural product was. And so I looked it up and I learned that you're going to be shocked. It's corn. What? <laughs> yeah. no, but they're, they're also a leader in the production of soybeans. Mm. I didn't know that. Okay. I knew corn. Yeah. And the primary fruit produced in Iowa is the apple. Oh. So that's kind of cool. I didn't live in Cedar Rapids long. I moved when I was seven, but it's still kind of cool kind of knowing a little bit more about the state we were born in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they obviously like kick out some cool bitches. (laughs) Kick out some cool ass bitches. So in honor of being hatched in the boring old Midwest, I am sipping on a truly delightful bourbon to quench my <gasps> thirst during our story hour today. Oh, as what am are you I? sipping on? You are a bourbon today? Yeah, you are a bourbon girl. Yeah, but yeah. mine's mine's probably a little less fancy than yours. But it's still tasty as fuck. It's so good. Do you do you have ice in there? Is oh yeah. It? It's just melting very quickly. Cause it's it's hot in the not Oh show. Cheers. Clink. I'm gonna take us back to nineteen forty eight to a murder that occurred in a high-end luxury hotel in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, called the Roosevelt Hotel. Okay. This murder is the unfortunate and very sad outcome of a love triangle gone very, very wrong. Oh, no. I got a lot of really great information and detail from the, the Gazette newspaper articles that were published between 1948 and 1951. They were fantastic. But I also read a book about this murder written by Diane Fannin Langton called Murder at the Roosevelt Hotel in Cedar Rapids. And she delivers so much detail. She goes into way more detail than I will go into. So if you want to know more, if anybody wants to know more about the details of the like the trial and just little tidbits here and there throughout this entire story, I recommend her book. Nice. She did a good job. Check it out. Let's dive in, shall we? Let's find it head first. Cedar Rapids sits in the middle right-hand side of the state. So it's close to the borders of Illinois and Wisconsin. Hey, hey. Oh. With a population of just over 134,000 residents. So it ain't that big. It's actually yeah. the largest city in Iowa behind Des Moines, which is it's it's the, that's the state's capital. Yeah. I actually that's bigger than I thought it was, actually. It's smaller than I thought it was because when you're there, it feels 
populated, but yeah, only 134,000 residents. It It isn't all that big comparatively speaking, but according to the World Population Review website, it boasts some serious fucking diversity by having a strong Muslim culture. Really? Yeah. The National Muslim Cemetery sits in Cedar Rapids, and it's thought to be the first exclusively Muslim cemetery in the entire United States. No kidding. Yep. Right there in Little Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Wow. That's pretty fucking cool. But that's not all. (gasps) The Mother Mosque of America. The Mother Mosque of America. Side note, that's a a fantastic name for a mosque. The Mother Mosque of America is also located in Cedar Rapids, which is the longest standing mosque in in North America. North America. Wow. That's crazy cool. Good job, Cedar Cedar Rapids. Bringing so much needed diversity to the Midwest. Makes corn and soybeans and, man, just a little diversity. I dig it. In 1948, the population of Cedar Rapids was roughly half the size it is today. It was about 68,000. The Roosevelt Hotel, where the murder took place, was mighty swanky. Oh. It was built in 1927 and widely considered the finest hotel of the city. It was located on First Avenue in the heart of Cedar Rapids, and it stood 12 whole stories tall. Shit. First Avenue basically bisects the city into north and south quadrants, while the Cedar River runs through the city, bisecting it into east and west quadrants. So you've got First Ave and then the Cedar River, and they kind of like cross over each other. Think of like an X, and it quadrants off east, north, southwest in Cedar Rapids. And that's why oftentimes you'll see like northwest or southeast in residential addresses to determine which quadrant of the city that the house sits in. Okay. Quick story about First Ave. Okay. So both my parents grew up in Cedar Rapids and when they were young whippersnappers, the thing to do was to cruise the Ave. Oh. And by cruise the Ave, I mean fucking drag race. (gasps) And one time, one of my dad's friends asked a cop if he would radar him to see how fast he was going, because he just wanted to make sure his speedometer was working accurately. Right. So if you could just do me a salad, bro, and just yeah. like, you know, could you just like, just radar me? I just want to see. I'm, I'm like, I just want to see if my, my speedometer. And then he fucking drag raced down First Avenue with his pedal to the metal. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, his speedometer worked just fine. And he knew okay. it worked well, just fine. Well, I mean, you never know. Back to First Ave in 1948. It was 7 a.m. on Wednesday, December 15th, a crisp 34 degrees. The wind was calm. A young chambermaid, Margaret Bell, entered room 729 to begin her cleaning duties. She had thought the guest had checked out, and so she was shocked to not only find a man still in the room, but to find him lying on the floor, face down, not moving, and in a pool of what she assumed was his own blood. Ooh, okay. So she straight up walked into the room to clean it and found this dead dude on the floor. According to an article in the Gazette newspaper, she immediately got the fuck up out of there and quickly found the elevator girl and told her to get the assistant manager or the bell captain. Aren't you loving these names? (laughs) Hey, elevator girl. Elevator girl. Yeah. Bellman Arnold Layer was the unlucky one working that day. He ran up to room 729 to see what the fuss was all about. And finding the body, he did actually check for a pulse 
And when he couldn't find one, he ran down to the lobby and he called both the coroner and the hotel officials. Side note, how did he know what the coroner's digits were? Yeah. And why, why not police? I, maybe hotels, maybe today, but maybe back then they had coroners on speed dial just in case there's a random body hanging out somewhere. Right. I don't know. I don't know. But I thought that was very interesting that his hmm. first, and maybe that was in their training, like, do not call the police. You call the hotel officials and you call the coroner. Right. Or maybe there was like a personal connection that was like, bro, get over here. A little aside about Margaret Bell, the chambermaid, and Arnold Lair, the bellman or the bell captain. I was able to find a little bit of information on both of them using the 1950 census records. So Margaret, in 1950, she was 24 years old. So that made her about 22 at the time of this incident. She was divorced. She had a three-year-old son. His name was Nelson. (laughs) And they both lived at home with her mom on 10th Street in Cedar Rapids. Arnold Lair was 31 years old, making him 29 at the time of the incident. He was married to the best named woman I've ever seen, Amaryllis Lair. Oh. Yep. He was married to Amaryllis Lair, and they also had a three-year-old son named Fenry. 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 Not Henry. Fenry. But spelled like that? Like Henry with an F? Yep. Fenry. They lived on K Avenue Northwest in Cedar Rapids, uh, Iowa. And I know where K Avenue Northwest is. Well, shit. Maybe Yeah. Might run into Fenry. Maybe. Yeah. They were both young, hard workers at the hotel. They were just trying to make a living. And then they got the pleasure of seeing this dead dude lying on the floor with blood all around. So I'm sure this was a pivotal moment in their lives and probably something they never forgot. Right. I mean, I'm just what a shit morning too because you know that like as a housekeeper, like you get pissed if somebody like shaves and doesn't wipe off the counter or the sink or whatever but to walk in and see a fucking body if that were me i'd be like god damn it is this how my day is gonna go yeah this is gonna be a fucking difficult mess to clean up let me tell the elevator girl (sighs) well when police arrived on the suite on the swing when police arrived on the scene they set up a squatting place in room 723 just a few doors down and set about figuring out what the fuck was going on and who the hell was this dude laying in a pool of blood. By mid-afternoon, the same day the body was discovered, they hadn't figured out much, but this is what they did know. The body on the floor was Byron Hatman. Okay. He was 29, he wasn't married, and he was an instrument designer for Emerson Electric Company, which was located in St. Louis, in the Aircraft Armament Group. Oh, He had served in the Marine Corps. He was about six foot two, weighed about 180 pounds, so tall and slim. And he was also a rather talented softball player playing every position on Emerson Electric's softball team. So this is what they found out about him. So he was the only player? (laughs) (laughs) He would pitch and then run out to the outfield. (laughs) Like what? Yep, nailed it. The police also quickly learned that Hatman didn't live in Cedar Rapids. He had arrived at the Roosevelt Hotel the day before, so on Tuesday, December 14th, and the police learned from Arthur Collins, the president of Collins Radio Company, which is based in Cedar Rapids, that Hatman regularly visited Cedar Rapids for work. You Hmm. see, he was a contract liaison. That's what he did in the aircraft armament group at Emerson Electric. 
Emerson Electric and Collins Radio Company had contracts with the Air Force. Oh, wow. Okay. Hatman was the point guy on those contracts for Emerson, often meeting with Collins radio engineers to get shit done and keep the contracts moving along. And that's what brought Hatman to Cedar Rapids on a regular basis. Gotcha. Okay. According to the Gazette article, between 5.15 and 6.15 p.m. on December 14th, Hatman left his 1948 Buick convertible. Okay, this is 1948. This dude, he's 29. He has a 1948 Buick convertible. Brand spanking new. Seems to be doing very fine for himself. Yeah. Plus I would he's say. tall and slim. He's tall and slim. So he left his 1948 Buick convertible in the downtown Loop Garage that served the Roosevelt Hotel. Okay. Sometime later that same evening, he was stabbed to death in his hotel room, room 729. Damn. And it was a bloody scene. There was blood everywhere all over the walls the bed the floor and there were some towels saturated with blood wadded up in the bathroom sink it was just it was a goddamn mess right wow dexter would have been in his happy place right so there obviously was a struggle like he was probably fighting pretty hard with whoever attacked him wow okay yes fun despite an exhaustive search police were not able to find a murder weapon but they could tell by the condition of the body and the scene that Hatman had been stabbed multiple times. Hmm. When coroner Robert Brosh arrived and examined the body, he determined Hatman's cause of death to be a stab wound to his lower left chest that was so violent, the knife pierced his heart and his liver and straight up broke his seventh rib. Damn. So the force and fury Ooh. had to have been pretty monumental yeah. for that to happen. Damn, that's intense. Yeah, Hatman also had other injuries that included like he had a handful of lacerations to his head. He had a suply, a suply, a super badly, so super badly, a suply injured mm-hmm. finger. I think from what I read, I think that was a like a defensive wound trying to ward off the knife blows. Yeah, yeah. And he had a black eye and bruised lips like he was like punched in the face a few times. Shit. And trying to determine a motive, the police started by ruling out what the motive likely wasn't. And that was robbery. They had found a few items they likely wouldn't have found had robbery really been the true intention of this fucking scene. First, they found Hatman's wallet on the floor directly next to his body. There wasn't any cash in his wallet, but usually if someone's going to steal your wallet because they're going to rob you, they're going to take your whole wallet. Right, for sure. And second, his watch was still on his wrist. And this was important because it was a really fucking expensive watch. Hmm. Okay. They also found his room key on the floor under the bed near his body. And that will be interesting later. That's an interesting tidbit for later. Okay. What they couldn't find were his glasses, which they knew he wore because the elevator operator had told detectives that Hatman was wearing horn-rimmed glasses when he checked in. Police also learned during their investigation that Hatman always wore glasses. He always had his glasses on because he couldn't see shit without them. I don't think his missing glasses is a valuable detail other than to say the fact that the police were really trying to figure out all of the pieces of this puzzle and they were just trying to fit everything together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was one more piece of evidence the police found. When searching Hatman's 1948 Buick convertible, Mm -hmm. they found a photo frame that inside had the neck vertebrae and the end part of a backbone of a chicken mounted on a piece of cloth. What? 
I wish people could see your face right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, what? <laughs> there was also a note that had lest you forget scrawled in pencil. Okay. So in all, they had some really fucking weird clues that they didn't know what to make of yet, but they were pretty sure this wasn't a robbery gone bad. And they really felt like with everything that they were seeing and what they had figured out so far that Hatman was intentionally targeted. Right. Okay. Quick question. Yes. Are we going to get to the bottom of the chicken vertebrae? <laughs> we are. Okay, good. I was like, if, if, if that's all I get, I'm going to be thinking about that shit for a while. You will have closure. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. When interviewing other hotel guests about what they may have seen or heard, they spoke to one guest who was staying in the room directly below room 729. His name was Eugene Potstock, and he was from Des Moines. Okay. He recounted to the investigators that he remembered hearing a, quote, hell of a fight mm-hmm. in the room above him around 5.45 p.m. on Tuesday evening, which was December 14th. It was loud enough that he originally thought that the fight was on his floor. So he opened his hotel room. He peeked his head out into the hallway. Nothing. And that's when he figured out, oh, it must be in the floor above me. But he didn't see anything. And so... He said the commotion ended pretty quickly and there wasn't any noise after that. So he just went on with his business and forgot all about it until the next day when it became known that someone had been murdered in their hotel room at the same hotel he was staying in that same night. Hmm. He was like, oh, the noise and the fight uh, must be related. The chicken. Wait, no, not yet. (laughs) A cab driver by the name of Wayne Jeffords came forward and told police that he had picked up a man outside of the Roosevelt Hotel that had what looked like tape, like like adhesive tape you would use to secure gauze, like a gauze pad, you know, that kind of tape? Yeah. Like he had that tape on his face. This man got into his cab and Jeffords drove him to Union Station first and then to the bus depot. He said the man got out of the cab, went into the bus depot, came back out and then walked up 2nd Street, turned into an alley where Jeffords could no longer see him. Wow. Okay. Police figured out who Hatman's father was and placed a call to him to break the news of his son's death. Mm -mm. John C. Hatman, Byron's father, lived in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. It was during this conversation that Mr. Hatman, the elder Hatman, told the police that his son regularly carried a lot of cash on him, upwards of three to four hundred dollars. Damn. Which police found really interesting since when they found Hatman's wallet, it didn't contain any cash. Yet, his very expensive watch was still on his wrist. So even with this new piece of information, they still just didn't think that this was a robbery. Right. With little else to go on to point the investigation in the right direction, police pressed the public to be on the lookout for anyone that looked like they may have recently been in an altercation or had fresh facial wounds. And as a matter of procedure, because of the type of work it did for the government, Collins Radio Company had to notify the FBI and Naval Intelligence about what had happened to Hatman. I'm not sure why Naval Intelligence, because they had contracts with the Air Force, but maybe they had bigger contracts with the Navy and Hatman was just simply working on an Air Force contract. Either way, as a matter of procedure, I guess in the SOP of if if somebody that works with your company is murdered, this is what you do, they notified Naval Intelligence. This is when the rumor mill went from zero to 60. And all kinds of rumors started floating around. The most popular being that Hatman's death must have had something to do with his line of work. 
something to do with those contracts or company secrets related to those contracts, something. I mean, he did work for the aircraft armament group. So maybe he had a secret clearance and knew some juicy shit. Maybe somebody was super keen to know that juicy shit. Mm. As this was becoming front page news and the police were able to dig deeper, they learned that Hatman had been at the receiving end of several pranks in the weeks leading up to his death. Okay. Like whoopee cushions. Alvin Stank, (laughs) Hatman's landlord and the only tenant in Stank's home at the time, said that just a week prior, Hatman found a spike-studded piece of wood in front of his car when he left in the morning to head to work. Wow. Leave it to a guy with the last name Stank to pull pranks. Like, that just does not surprise me. No, Stank didn't pull the prank. Oh. Stank, <laughs> Stank was just the landlord where Hatman lived. Oh. Hatman happened to be the only tenant in Stank's home. You got completely derailed by the name Stank. I, I did. I kind of stopped listening for a second. And I, assu- <laughs> I assumed that Stank was the culprit. No. My mistake. <laughs> it's a good Stank. He's a good Stank. Oh, okay. So like fresh yeah. laundry. Yes. So Hatman, he found a spike-studded piece of wood in front of his car when he left for work that morning. This was just one example of several incidents that had occurred in the weeks leading up to Hatman's death. Wow. Okay. Stank said that Hatman was known for going on dates, many dates, many dates every week, like three to four a week, every week, but that lately he had been staying at home, going out hardly at all. Oh, Okay. Remember that framed chicken bones? <laughs> Carrie, I will never fucking forget. <laughs> well, two of Hatman's friends that he worked with were able to clear up the mystery. Okay. Paul Deem and Fred Gaze told the police that Hatman had enjoyed a nice picnic with a girl who had made fried chicken for them to eat. And mm-hmm. he had enjoyed that fried chicken. And the framed chicken bones were a gift from her to remind him of their picnic together. (laughs) Okay. Who is this girl? I want to meet her. That is one hell of a way to remind a suitor of a date. Right. But also. That's bold. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how I would feel if it was like, don't forget me. That was the best. Here's some vertebrae and (laughs) chicken backbone. (laughs) She liked him so much. She made this bone frame for him to remind him of their... Well, I'm going to put that in my back pocket. This is what you do. Girl, check your, your mail tomorrow. <laughs> I, I made something special for you. <laughs> Fred Gaze also shared with police that he remembers Hatman taking $150 from his expense account for his trip. Since Hatman had only been in Cedar Rapids for like a day, like 24 hours, he should have had most of it on him still. But again... There was no cash found in his wallet. So Mm -hmm. another notch in the mystery of why the fuck was there no cash in his wallet if this wasn't a robbery? Yeah. Police also learned something interesting from Margaret Bell, the chambermaid that found Hatman's body. This part is so cool. She said the hotel doorknobs talk to the maids. I'm I'm sorry. Yes. They talk to the maids. There's like, it's like a code. What? If the knob wouldn't turn at all, it meant that the door had been locked from the inside and one could assume that the room was occupied. Okay. If the knob turned part way, it meant that the door had been locked from the outside and presumably the room's guest wasn't in the room. 
And the maids used this code to help them determine which rooms could be cleaned. Gotcha. Okay. So they they were like, someone's still in here. Okay. I was like, that's fucking creepy. Got it. That was a really creepy voice. <laughs> Did it sound like a talking doorknob? It sounded like Billy Bob Thornton in Blade Runner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or Sling Blade. Sling Blade. Blade Runner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? That's not right. <laughs> So the maids used this to help them determine which rooms they could clean. What was stumping the police, though, was that Hatman's doorknob had turned partway for Margaret, which is why she entered the room to clean it and was so startled to see a body. Well, and also because it was laying on the floor in blood. Yeah. Yet his room key was lying on the floor next to his body inside the room. Hmm. So they figured okay. the only explanation is there were two room keys and whoever committed the murder took off with one of them. And that was what was used to lock the door from the outside. But then the police learned something else. Oh, shit. The, they learned that sometimes one room key could open the door to another room. Oh, well, that's safe. They tested cool. this theory and were able to open room 729 with room 725's key. Hmm. Um, I do not love this one bit. <laughs> Have they fixed that? Or I spend a significant amount of time in hotel rooms. And this unsettles me greatly. Yeah. You use that little flippy thing on the inside, please. Yeah. So hopefully in the last 75 years, they've figured out how to be more secure. Yeah. But yeah, so it could have been that. It could have been he got lucky. But what okay. we know is that he didn't need a key at all. And we're going to get to that. Okay. All right. While the police were trying to figure out what was what, the picture of just what the hell happened was starting to shift into focus. And by that Friday, three days later... People were starting to learn how and why Hatman was murdered. In fact, the truth was something the Gazette had known for a little bit, but kept it under wraps so it didn't screw up the investigation. Hmm. So they didn't publish anything until the timing made sense. Gotcha. Okay. Could you imagine any press publication doing that today? No. No. Cannot. Fucking selfish heathens. Mm. The police began to sort out the series of events that led up to Hatman's murder. And this is what they began to piece together. Okay. Margaret Bell, the chambermaid that found Hatman's body, told police about a man she saw on the day of the murder. She was at work at the hotel and happened to be cleaning room 729 when a man walked in and asked her how long it would take until she was finished. Margaret assumed he was the one staying in the room, and so she told him, I won't be much longer, maybe 10 minutes or so. She said that he left, but then came back like five minutes later and just waited there until she finished cleaning the room and left. She never saw him again after she left him standing in room 729. Weird. Police showed Margaret a photo of Hatman and she said, nope, no, 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 no. That was not the guy that I saw and talked to the day before. Interesting. And what a kind of a creeper. That's just kind of, that's just creepy. Yeah. If I were Margaret, I would have been creeped out by this. Yeah. Yeah. Police knew that a man with adhesive tape on his face got into a taxi in front of the Roosevelt Hotel around 5.45 p.m. the same night as the murder because they had talked to the cab driver. A credit manager at a company called Handler Motor in Cedar Rapids told the police of an interesting and unusual occurrence that happened. So this credit manager, she told them that a man from St. Louis had a water pump replaced on his car, but he didn't have enough money to pay for the repair. He gave her a handful of references in Cedar Rapids to establish credit back in the day when that was like a thing to do. 
Then he called the next day from St. Louis, letting her know that he was sending a check for $15.31. Shoot. To cover the cost of the repair. I should have looked up what that was today. I mean, it's probably a good chunk. (laughs) But by this time, the credit manager felt that he was sus. She had already checked out all of those credit references that he had provided, and they were all fake. Oh. So she did the right thing, and she called the police, who discovered that a Dr. Rutledge had checked into the Montrose Hotel, which is another hotel in Cedar Rapids, on that Monday, December 13th, and had checked out early Tuesday, December 14th, Okay, which was the morning of the murder. Dr. Rutledge had also stayed at the Montrose Hotel the week prior on December 6th. So now Dr. Rutledge's name is brought into the investigation. And they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Who's this motherfucker? Then police began to hear rumblings of an affair. Some of the people that Hatman worked with at Collins Radio shared that he had told them about some trouble he was having with a doctor in St. Louis over the doctor's wife. Uh Uh-oh. When the police investigated this, they discovered that Hatman had been having an affair with Dr. Robert, Rutl- Robert Rutledge's wife, Sydney. Okay. So now the police were like, okay, now we're getting to a possible motive. Yeah. And it explains why he was going on fewer dates. Yes. Or he was scared for his life, one of the two. Oh, okay. She was a mathematician. Go, girl. Cool. And Hatman worked with her. In the same group, the Aircraft Airplane Armament Group at Emerson Electric Company in St. Louis. Interesting. All right. So now, with the evidence they had in hand, along with a strong possible motive, on Friday, December 17th, three days after the murder, the head of the investigation, Dr. Tom Condon, along with Sheriff Deputy Larry Condon, I have no idea if they're related, and Lynn County Attorney William Chrisman, They all traveled from Cedar Rapids to St. Louis to the police station there. And they asked Detective William Washer of the St. Louis Police Department to take Rutledge into custody for questioning about a murder that had occurred in Cedar Rapids and for which he was a strong person of interest slash suspect. Wow. Okay. So they, along with three St. Louis officers, went to Rutledge's home at 2.20 in the morning to bring him down to the station to question him. His wife, Sydney, answered the door and told them he was in the bathroom. And since they had no arrest warrant, they couldn't break into the bathroom. So they just waited for him to come out and waited and waited until he finally came out. And when he did, he was very calm. Well, he'd been shitting for like three hours. So (laughs) like like he was in the bath, just in the bathroom at 220. Just, oh, he he just is his poop time. I think what happened was they heard the knock. Oh, yeah. And he he got up and like hid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The officers told Rutledge, get dressed. And when he's and when he was decent, they walked out of the apartment and onto the street where Rutledge saw that other officers were executing a search on his red convertible. And this made him nervous. He told the officers that excitement wasn't good for him because he had a bad heart. And had been advised to take it easy. He's 27 years old. They put Rutledge in the back of the police car. And they headed to the police headquarters to question him. And they hadn't gotten more than a half a block away from Rutledge's apartment. When he lit a cigarette. Took a drag. 
and then slumped toward the left passenger door, where he began to perspire, vomit, froth mm-hmm. at the mouth, and writhe violently. What the fuck? Ew. They immediately made a detour to the hospital, where his stomach was pumped and he was given oxygen. When they asked him what he had taken, he initially refused to answer, but sometime later, after he woke from a short coma, he said that he had taken a sleeping potion just as they had arrived at his home to question him. And then he said, you shouldn't have brought me round. I would be better off dead. My career is ruined anyhow. Wow, Debbie Downer. Are those the words of an innocent man? No. Or guilty But man? also just like, Meh. What's interesting here is that all the articles, as well as the book, call this an arrest, but police never had an arrest warrant in hand. So I'm not sure if this was truly an arrest or if they were trying to like, quasi-arrest i'm not sure well and if he was smoking in the back of the police car he obviously wasn't handcuffed mm-hmm. you know it seems like it was just a pretty pretty loosey-goosey like we just want to ask you some questions dude yeah when rutledge was in, was released from the hospital officers took him to police headquarters where they started the questioning during which rutledge admitted that he had indeed been in Hatman's hotel room at the Roosevelt Hotel on Tuesday, December 14th, and that, yes, he did get into a fight with him, but he didn't stab him. He said they fought over the attention Hatman was giving Sidney, his wife. Rutledge told the police that Hatman had been trying to get Rutledge to pay him to leave his wife alone. So Hatman was trying to get Rutledge to like give him money. Like, hey, hey, if you pay me, I'll leave your wife alone. So basically blackmailing Rutledge. Right. Okay. This was when Rutledge was in Hatman's hotel room with him and what caused the fight to break out. Hmm. Okay. So they're in the hotel room. He's trying to blackmail him. And that pissed Rutledge off. And then the fight broke out. Police could see that Rutledge had a black eye and a broken nose clear indications that he had recently been in a scuffle and and it, they were fresh. Rutledge said that Hatman had kicked him in the eye and then brandished a knife, which Rutledge was able to get away from him. Then he knocked Hatman out, but he claimed he never remembered stabbing him. Hmm, okay. He admitted that he went to Cedar Rapids specifically to confront Hatman and that he did walk into Hatman's room while the maid was cleaning it. Gotcha. Okay, I was going to ask, like, what was his fucking reason for being there yeah he verified margaret bell's story that he simply waited in the room for her to finish her duties and then he kept waiting there until hatman returned the police asked again what he had taken in the police car rutledge said it was a phenobarbital mixed with some drug that he refused to name a phenobarbital is a secondary treatment pediatricians will use to treat newborns with neonatal abstinence syndrome which is a condition of withdrawal symptoms from exposure to opioid drugs in utero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Rutledge mixed some other drug with this phenobarbital, which is what landed him in the hospital the night yeah. that the police came to question him. He was a pediatrician, so it makes sense that he would have access to that kind of drug. Right. It's weird, though, that he just had it on hand at his house. Like he was preparing for this. I think he was intending to take his own life. Uh, and it didn't if he work was out. Caught, yeah. Yeah. If he was caught. Yep. And they came knocking on the door and he's like, well. Meanwhile, while officers were handling Rutledge down at the station, detectives Tom Condon from Cedar Rapids and William Washer from St. Louis 
along with attorney William Crispin, stayed at the Rutledge apartment to question Sydney, who told them about an affair between her and Hatman. She told them that she and Hatman had met at Emerson Electric in February when she started working there, and they hit it off immediately. Okay. That summer, she went sailing with Hatman and some friends on the Mississippi. She said that Rutledge knew about this, and he consented to it. He said it was okay for her to go. This led to a second sailing date with just Hatman, followed by drinks, followed by the two of them ending up at Sydney and Rutledge's apartment. But this time, Rutledge didn't know about it. And when he found out, that was the last time Sydney saw Hatman. Wow. Socially. Okay. She told police that Rutledge and Hatman had talked on the phone a few times, and each time the conversations became more intense and angrier. Hmm. Officers asked Sydney when Rutledge got home from Cedar Rapids. And she told them, well, he got home a little after midnight on Wednesday night, December 15th. Cedar Rapids and St. Louis are like, a four and a half hour drive apart. They're not that far. Now. Like. Oh, I suppose then, then it might have been longer. You would have been. <laughs> I don't think it was like 1920s, but definitely. You maybe weren't. A, maybe out of couple like of hours. 75 on the interstate. She said when he got home, he had a black eye and bruises all over his body and had told her that he had gone to Cedar Rapids to talk to Hatman about the affair. He told her that he had waited in Hatman's hotel room, and when he got there, they fought. Hatman pulled a knife. Rutledge knocked it away, knocked Hatman out, and then left. He told her the first he knew of Hatman's death was when he read it in the morning paper on Wednesday. Okay. So flipping back down to the police headquarters where the police are questioning Rutledge, he eventually decides to just get his story on record. And in a statement he made, now it's December 18th, this is what he said, and I took this directly from Diane Fennon Langdon's book, that Byron Hatman had been calling him both at his home and at the hospital on an average of twice per week through August, September, October, and the middle of November of 1948, making lewd and indecent remarks to Rutledge about his wife and asking him to divorce her and give her a break so she could go out and have a good time. Mm. Rutledge stated that he drove to Cedar Rapids on December 14th to talk to Hatman and to ask him to cease bothering him and his wife. He intended to offer Hatman money if the talk failed. On arriving in Cedar Rapids, he went to room 729 of the Roosevelt Hotel. Upon finding the door open, he entered the room at about 12.30 p.m. No one was in the room. So he made himself comfortable by removing his hat and suit coat and read a magazine while waiting for Hatman to return. After considerable time in the room, it became dark. So he lowered the shades and turned on the light. And shortly thereafter, Hatman entered the room and asked him, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, right. Like... Rutledge then informed Hatman he was there for the purpose of getting Hatman to let him and his wife alone. And if nothing else would make Hatman cease bothering him, would he accept the money in Rutledge's pocket? Rutledge said Hatman informed him that he had plenty of money and did not need his money. At the same time of saying this, he removed a billfold from his pocket and showed Rutledge a sum of money. This so outraged Rutledge that he struck Hatman in the face with his fist, and Hatman went down on one knee, scattering the money on the floor. Whoa. When Hatman arose from the floor, he had a black-handled clasp knife in his hand. 
as Hatman lunged toward him with the knife. Rutledge grabbed Hatman's arm in a judo hold. (gasps) No! And at the same time, wrestling the knife from his hand. Hatman again rose to his feet and came toward Rutledge. Rutledge made thrusting motions with the knife to keep him away. During the fight, Rutledge stated that he was struck in the nose and kicked in the eye. Not the face, the eye. Like a full roundhouse? Like full roundhouse, just in the eye. Wow. After thrusting at Hatman several times, he happened to notice Hatman lying on the floor. Hmm. Rutledge then went to the bathroom and washed the blood from his nose. He returned to the room, put his hat and coat on, gathered up the money which was lying about the room, and put it in his pocket, at the same time picking up Hatman's eyeglasses and his own, which had been broken in the fight. Hmm. He then left the room and went to his automobile, which was parked about a block away from the Roosevelt Hotel, and started back for St. Louis. En route, he threw all the money away except $35, which he stated was his own money. Also, he threw away the eyeglasses and the knife. And arriving at home, he noticed bloodstains on his shirt, so he burned that. Oh, okay. The suit he was wearing at the time of his arrest, slash not arrest, was the same one he wore in Cedar Rapids. When questioned as to how he disposed of the knife, Rutledge claimed he threw it away at the same time he disposed of the eyeglasses and the money, but he wasn't able to state the approximate location of where he had disposed of these articles. Okay. There is a lot to unpack here. So he, his whole mission of the trip was really accomplished. Like he, he felt great about how things ended. Yeah. I find his statement dumb. Well, it doesn't make any sense because he went to confront him and be like, you're going to leave my wife alone. Like, if I have to give you money, I will. But not just like, okay, we kicked each other's asses and now I'm out. Bye. I'm going to head back. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't. First, he claimed the room was empty when we know it wasn't. He had walked in on Margaret Bell cleaning the room. He had already confirmed this. Second, he's a young pediatrician. He's 27 years old. And we're judo chopping a fighting opponent opponent <laughs> while simultaneously wrestling a knife out of his hand? Yes. Third, we're adamant that we never stabbed Hart- Hatman, yet we put the knife in our hand and we admit to thrusting at him several times and then realize that he's lying motionless on the floor? Like, that doesn't make any fucking sense It doesn't. And also, why did he get home after midnight on Wednesday an entire day after the murder? Hmm. Again, St. Louis and Cedar Rapids are only today four and a half hours apart let's let's double that time for sake of argument he had 24 hours to get home what the fuck was he doing but in his statement he said i immediately got in the car and i headed home and didn't stop nothing no no well Well, the police didn't buy it either on december 20th 1948 rutledge was officially charged with the first degree murder of byron hatman and was immediately bailed out on a five thousand dollar bond by his father Rutledge's extradition from St. Louis to Cedar Rapids to stand trial becomes a major sticking point. It took about three months. Rutledge got himself an attorney, rightfully so. Yeah. And the two of them played all sorts of legal games to prolong his extradition, often using Rutledge's quote unquote ill health as the excuse (laughs) as to why he wouldn't be able to physically take incarceration and a trial. Yet... He can judo chop, wrestle a knife, and knock an opponent out all in one fell swoop. Yeah. I bet it was his heart condition that prolonged his drive, like his his speedy trip back to St. Louis. Oh, I bet you're right. I didn't even yeah. think of that. Yep. So three months might not sound like a really long time, but 
Rutledge was free on bail, living in St. Louis with his wife, Sydney, for that entire time before he was finally extradited back to Cedar Rapids on March 23rd, 1949. Was he still practicing medicine at that time? Mm. Do you know? I don't think he was practicing medicine at that time, but he does later. So that does come back. Oh, shit. Okay. On Monday, March 28th, 1949, Rutledge was arraigned in court for the murder of Byron Hatman. And on April 1st, Rutledge entered a plea of not guilty. Okay. Judge J.E. Heiserman would preside over the trial, which began on May 2nd, 1949. Rutledge walked into the courtroom with Sidney by his side. And he was looking much thinner than he had when he was arraigned. Hmm. Okay. Throughout the trial, there was significant back and forth about the knife that was used to stab and kill Hatman. It became known that it was somewhat common knowledge that Hatman had a small three-inch blade folding knife that he usually carried with him. Okay. So little doodad. Yeah. This knife was never found at the crime scene or on Hatman's body. Wow. Nobody knows. Maybe he didn't have it with them, but it was general common knowledge that he he usually carried this small three-inch folding knife. Okay. Coroner Robert Brosh had stated when he first examined Hatman's body that the fatal wound in his chest was made by at least a six-inch blade. Interesting. On the stand, Dr. Regis E. Wheeland, Lynn County Deputy Coroner, in testimony for the prosecution stated that the weapon used was a narrow, sharp instrument at least five inches long. Okay. A blade less than five inches could not have made that wound. That was a quote. The defense argued that a three-inch blade could have caused the fatal injury and that it was self-inflicted by Hatman. Oh. Sidney also took the stand and painted a story of rape by Hatman and that at one point, she thought she had become pregnant from the encounter. Wow. Okay. Rutledge also took the stand in his own defense, recounting for the jury the same story he had told the police. The defense was doing everything they could to make Hatman the villain and Rutledge the knight in shining armor protecting his wife and her reputation. Right. The prosecution, of course, was doing everything they could to prove that the angle of the wound and the position of Hatman's body made a self-inflicted stabbing impossible and poking holes in both Sidney and Rutledge's stories. The book, Murder at the Roosevelt Hotel in Cedar Rapids, goes into great depth in the trial. I highly recommend the book. Yeah, and how they came up with that title is beyond me. I wish they would have made it more obvious. Yeah, it's like, what is this book about? Fuck. (laughs) On May 28th, 1949, at 8.10 p.m., the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Guilty of second-degree murder of Byron C. Hatman in room 729 at the Roosevelt Hotel on the evening of December 14th, 1948. So it was, what, second-degree because he only planned to confront him? I mean, it was obviously planned that he was going to go, but I'm assuming they couldn't, like, confirm that he had planned to kill him initially. I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of because this is, like, significant premeditation. And like I said, the book goes into so much more detail. But a lot of the detail that I didn't get into is how many times – like, basically, Rutledge was stalking Hatman. Mm -hmm. Like, he was stalking him. He had been, he had like traveled to Cedar Rapids, like 
several times when he knew Hatton was in Cedar Rapids for work. And there were a few times when he tried to like confront him, but like missed him. Wow. See, that's why I'm surprised by the. Yeah. But so I, I wonder if it was a matter of, I just hit the desk. Sorry if that reverberated, but I wonder if it was a matter of the jury just kind of coming to a compromise because the way it seems in the book, they kind of came to a compromise because someone at first degree. So yeah. But anyway, second degree murder was the guilty verdict. The sentence for second degree murder at the time was 10 years to life in prison. Wow. The jury foreman, Archie Farmer, told reporters that, quote, none of us believed the doctor's story. Oh, well, that's good. But yet he still got second degree murder. Hmm. On July 14th, 1949, Rutledge's defense team filed a motion for a new trial, citing the following. Number one, the jury was prejudiced since juror Emil Novotny was heard to say before the trial that he thought Rutledge was guilty. Number two, the reenactment by the prosecution of the crime during the original trial amounted to testimony by the prosecution. And number three, Judge Heiserman did not properly instruct the jury. Okay. Shockingly, on August 1st, 1949, a hearing for a new trial was held with the defense and prosecution duking it out once again. And on August 5th, 1949, Judge Heiserman shockingly denied Rutledge a new trial. Cool. I think it's funny how it's the same judge hearing the appeal hearing. And one of the reasons you're citing in the appeal hearing, not appeal, excuse me, um, the judge that's presiding over a motion for a new trial is that the judge did not properly instruct the jury. <laughs> He's like, also, no, I didn't. Fuck you guys. Yeah. Moving right along. On August 8th, 1949, both the defense and prosecution were facing off again, this time in arguing what sentence Rutledge should get. The prosecution was arguing for life in prison, while the defense said life in prison was a sadistic sentence. The defense attorney brought up the unwritten law that allowed a man to defend his home's sanctity, saying, quote, what was so terrible about this killing? It was based on the unwritten law. That is not recognized in Iowa, but it is a matter for the court to consider. Oh, my God. Really? So you drive to another state, seek a man out, stalk the shit out of him, and sit and wait in his hotel room? <laughs> like, Yeah, and that's, that's protecting your home's that's sanctity. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. Listen, this is unreal. The Bible, the Bible says it. It's fine. Men, men should be able to do this. Yeah. Well, oh after God. hearing all arguments, Judge Heiserman sentenced Rutledge to 70 years in prison. Oh, okay. Immediately after sentencing, a volunteer group calling themselves Parole for Rutledge got to work on raising money to get Rutledge free on bond. It would cost about $40,000. And 279 days later, Rutledge was free on bond. Holy the Parole shit. for Rutledge group having paid his bail. So the Damn. day he left prison, he met up with Sydney and they hightailed it down to Houston, Texas, which was Rutledge's hometown. He even obtained permission to open a children's clinic in Houston what? and began practicing medicine again as a pediatrician. What? Mm -hmm. How? Sadly, just, short, just a short time after he was released on bond in December 1950, Rutledge's father was killed when the car he was riding in was struck by a train. Mm-hmm. Or the car struck the train, or the train struck the car. Either way, the train and the car kissed, and it wasn't good. 
His friend and attorney, Ernest Folk, who was riding in the car with him, also died. Mm. That sucks. Senior Rutledge's will outlined instructions for his estate to be used to continue the fight for the younger Rutledge's freedom. That's how invested he believed in his son's innocence. Wow. Rutledge's sentence was appealed by his attorneys to the Iowa Supreme Court. And on Thursday, March 8th, 1951, the hearing got underway with the prosecution stating that the defense's premise was that, quote, Hatman was a man very much in need of killing. Essentially, the appeal hearing was a mini recreation of the original hearing. And on Wednesday, April 4th, 1951, the Iowa Supreme Court turned down Rutledge's appeal of his second degree murder conviction. So they they said, nope, we're going to we're going to uphold this. So after his conviction was upheld, Rutledge told Sidney that the ruling would probably prevent him from practicing medicine. So he <laughs> yeah. would probably have to close this child's clin- children's clinic. Oh, bummer, dude. Okay. They also started tending to other business, basically just tying up loose ends before he was going to like spend the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. After leaving Sydney at the house of some friends, Rutledge drove out to a field outside of Houston where he and Sydney used to fly model airplanes and he parked his car. Oh, that's precious. He was found by some men who had who had seen his car parked there the night before, but just assumed he was drunk and he was sleeping it off. But when they saw that the car was still there the next morning, they went to check out what was going on. Well, the engine was still running, and a 25-foot plastic hose ran from the car's right window yeah. to the exhaust. Yeah. The gas pedal had been weighed down by medical books, and Rutledge had taken his own life. Wow. Shortly after his conviction was upheld, Rutledge had wrote, had wrote, had written, and mailed Sydney a letter stating, quote, Dear Diddy, sorry to run out on you like this, but I think it's best for you this way. There is a good future for you if you can just forget about all of this. Love is a fleeting thing at best, and time will cure a lot of grief. Just a few instructions. One, airplanes and tools to George. Two, books to Baylor Medical School. I love you, Bob. Wow. Okay. Ten years later, an interesting th- set of things occurred. Sydney sued the federal government for Rutledge's $10,000 life insurance payout. <laughs> you see, Sydney was refused any payments because she was not listed as the beneficiary. Rutledge had been married before Sydney. Oh. And it was his first wife, Eula Ruth Suggs, that was the beneficiary. That sucks. And when Eula found out, she was like, show me the money. It's like, that motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Shoot. Ev- eventually, the two women reached a settlement whereby Eula received $6,500 and Sydney received $3,500. Weird. Yeah, I can't imagine that. Like, look, we both dealt with that motherfucker. There was obviously some confusion. Let's just kind of go half seas. You let me know what you're comfortable with and we'll have lunch sometimes maybe (laughs) i'm sure that's how it went down sydney eventually moved to california in 1952 and she got remarried to a guy named billy burkhart okay and over the next nine years she had four daughters and by 1961 she had divorced burkhart so she was a single mom of four she ended up taking a job as a receptionist at stanford university in palo alto california Eventually, she was promoted to lead administrator of the psychology department, and then eventually 
she became the assistant fucking dean in the School of Humanities and Sciences. Damn. I love a strong career woman. Even if she was fucking around on her first husband, man, I love a strong career woman. Yeah. She's like, I used to be a mathematician that sailed on the Mississippi, and now look at me. Yeah. She was clearly had some smarts. Yeah. She was obviously very well educated. Yeah. Well, she worked for Stanford all those years, and in 1987, she retired and relocated to Hood River, Oregon. By this point, she was a grandma. And in her retirement years, she was very active in like literacy campaigns and book clubs. Yeah. Okay. She died on September 13th, 2012 at the age of 87 in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Okay. And that is the story of the murder at the Roosevelt Hotel in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Wow. That's intense. So is the, is the hotel still there? The hotel is still there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's apartment buildings now. Oh, I was going to say, I hope they got their key shit figured out. Cause... Yeah, no, it's still in the same place. It's still 12 stories, but it's they turned it into apartments. Okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. So we should add that to our field trip list. Yeah, we've got so many trips to take. <laughs> I, w- I yeah. want to go knock on that apartment and be like, look, <laughs> you should first of all listen to our podcast. And secondly, can we come in and just wander around a bit? Maybe we'll do a couple reenactments. Maybe, maybe. We'll see. I wonder which apartment is room 729 or where 729 was. I don't know. But we can take turns being the elevator girl and like yelling for each other. And Oh, my God. Jamie, Jamie, I found a man dead. There's blood everywhere. Could you imagine seeing that site? I couldn't. Tell like, whoever the fuck to call the coroner. You know, the coroner. <laughs> God, it's in the handbook. <laughs> Oh, man. Good Whew. shit. This bourbon is making me warm. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed. As always, please follow us on Insta- Instapod? No, Instagram at Crime Instapod. <laughs> We're still. And if you have any case suggestions, ideas, things like that, or you just want to say, hey, send us an email at crimewilltellpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And if you want to contact Carrie directly, Email her at sweettits at yahoo.com. <laughs> you know, she. <laughs> if somebody has that actual email address, they're going to be pissed. No one's going to test it out. I will shit. I might. I might just be like, hey, sweettits at yahoo and just see what happens. <laughs> who, who dis? Yeah. Hey, girl. <laughs> or boy. Or yeah. you. Yeah. Or they. It, or them. They might have moobs. It's hard to say. Moobs. <laughs> Is that man boobs? Moobs? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Sure is. (laughs) Oh. Well. Anywho. Bye, Jamie. Okay. Okay. Bye, Carrie. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye then. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. My cheeks are really red from this bourbon. You know, I have pockets. It's so hard to podcast. Like, guess what? We get to do it again. I don't fucking know. Well, I am happy about that i'm sitting here sweating menards right off god damn it great we all lived happily fucking ever after and scene <laughs> <laughs>